welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. Next up on the ABCA podcast is Utah Associate Head Coach Gary Henderson. Coach Henderson has a long and successful track record in coaching. He started his coaching journey at the high school level and from there coached at San Diego State, Cal State Fullerton, Riverside Community College, Chapman, Pepperdine, Florida, Oregon State, Kentucky, Mississippi State, and now Utah. If you're going to map out coaches to learn from, it would be guys like Jim Dietz, Dennis Rogers, Larry Cashel, Mike Weathers, Andy Lopez, John Cohn, and Bill Kinnenberg. Coach Henderson has had success at every stop along the way as an assistant and head coach. He was named the Collegiate Baseball National Assistant Coach in 1996, the Southeastern Conference Coach of the Year in 2012, and the National Collegiate Baseball Writers Coach of the Year in 2018. He's one of the brightest pitching minds we have in the game. In this episode, we cover his path, what makes a great coaching staff, how to handle conflicts on your staff, program and pitching staff development, and recruiting. Get your pad and pen ready because Coach Henderson dishes out a lot of quality and expensive experience. Let's welcome Coach Henderson to the podcast. Quick thank you to everyone for listening to the ABCA podcast. We've now recorded 100 episodes and hit over a million downloads in a year and a half. Appreciate you investing your time to listen. As always, reach out to me if you need anything. Thanks again for joining me on this journey of self-discovery and self-improvement. If an episode speaks to you in a positive way, please send it out. Now on to the podcast. Here with Gary Henderson, Associate Head Coach at Utah, also Mississippi State, Kentucky, Oregon State, Florida, Pepperdine, Chapman, Riverside, Cal State Fullerton, San Diego State, and pitched at Linfield and, and San Diego State. So Coach, thanks for being here. Yep, glad for the opportunity. Who got you into coaching? Was it Coach Dietz? No. Um, I think the biggest influence on me were, were uh, some high school coaches. Uh, I played for some really good uh, people when I was in high school, both football and baseball. Uh, some pretty impactful people. My high school football coach was a 10 of a guy, and uh, so was his assistant uh assistant staff, really good people. And I had a good high school baseball coach and then a, a very good impactful uh, Legion baseball coach. So I was 
So that was something you, you had always thought about doing after you were done playing? Absolutely. I was going to be a ninth grade uh, or an English teacher and uh, coach football and baseball in high school. Started out that way at Sarah High School in San Diego and discovered pretty quick that I didn't want to teach English uh, for 30 years. I was the same way. I had to substitute teach when I first volunteered. And that was the best thing I did was sub because that kicked out doing any sort of lower education, grade school, high school stuff, because I realized how hard it was going to be. And it was something that I was not passionate about. I spent parts of three years as a substitute school teacher in San Diego City Schools. And uh, it is a tremendous training ground and learning experience. There's no doubt about that. You know, you go down the list of guys that you've been around, just head coaches with Coach Dietz, Larry Cochelle, uh, Jack Smitherin, Mike Weathers, Andy Lopez, Pat Casey, John Cohn, now Bill Kinnenberg. What were some of the things that you picked up from those guys? That you have to be yourself, that you can be successful doing it a lot of different ways. That's uh, diverse, a very good group of coaches, obviously. Very strong group, uh, but some really wide widely different personalities and different ways of going about the job. Uh, as you mentioned, really fortunate. I've got to be the only guy in the history of college baseball to work for four national coaches of the year. You know, so I was really fortunate. Well, and, and you've been assistant coach of the year as well. I mean, so you can't discount what you've done because there's a, there's a difference with being around guys like that, but then also taking what you're learning from them and implementing it. And, you know, you talked about being yourself. How long did it take you to figure that part out? D did you get that right away that, hey, I need to be myself? Or did it take you a little bit to figure that out? It takes a while to figure it out because sometimes when you're being yourself, you're not as impactful as you should be. You're not as good as you should be. And you got to get over yourself a little bit. And you got to meet some, sometimes you got to meet the kids halfway. Sometimes you got to meet them further than halfway, you know, if you're going to be you're going to reach all of them in, in, you know, their individual style or whatever it is that they need in the relationship. Uh, you know, sometimes you're not immediately what you need to be for some of those guys. Yeah. It's uh, that, that was hard for me. I, I think you go from that playing to, to coaching piece because you still have that player mentality, um, you know, which you should as a player, you're going to focus more on yourself at times, but I think it, that's a hard transition going from playing to, to then coaching. It's a really hard transition at, at, at certain times. And then you take a look at the environment that I was in at San Diego State for five years, and, and you compare that to the environment that, that we currently work in. That's, you know, those are two pretty drastically different uh, beasts. What, what are the biggest differences? Well, one would be rules. <laughs> two, two would be games. Time uh, spent on the field would be another one. You know, uh, I tell the story a lot to our kids in uh, May of 1993, I was walking across the outfield coming down from the top of uh, Peterson administration building at San Diego State through the right, right center field gate. And I, I don't remember the exact date, but it was a Tuesday of finals week. So something, you know, roughly the 20th of, of May and, and Gary Kondatek was out there working with somebody, our pitching coach. And as I walked by, he asked me what I was doing. I said I had an off day today, and we talked for briefly, and I told him it was the third day off I had had since December 27th. So since from December 27th to finals week, uh, I had three days off. And, and I'm not complaining. That's the way it was, and we loved it. But it's obviously uh, changed a great deal. 
How do you navigate that now with less time with them and, and still being able to develop them as players? Well, one thing that's different is you, we're not playing 90 games anymore. So, you you know, the, you, you do have some practice time. You know, if you look back at the games that we played when I was there, I think one year we played 88, another year we played in uh, low 80s, and another year we played 91, which I'm sure is still a record, uh, 91 games in a, in a college baseball season. But so you have a practice uh, option, availability is a better word, uh, today that we didn't necessarily have at that point in time. But uh you, you just get organized, early work, uh, late work, work during BP, whatever it is, whenever you got to get that stuff, you know, because we do everything one-on-one -on, -one on the mound. And so you got to make, uh, you got to make your schedule work. And besides the head coaches, you've been with some great assistant coaches as well. What, you know, what does make up a great coaching staff? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, a great coaching staff has guys that like to work, like to be around each other. There's a chemistry. There's some, uh, there's the ability to clean up another guy's maybe weaknesses just a little bit. You know, not everybody has the same strengths. Not everybody has the same communication style. Uh, but you got to like the game and you got to like to work. You know, of those staffs you've been on, because you're going to have confrontations and disagreements as, at times. What did the best staffs, how were they able to navigate some of those arguments or maybe confrontations that you have within your staff? Well, I, I think it's best if, if, you, if you can do it in the office and not do it in the dugout in the middle of the seventh inning. I, I think that's a good start, uh, you know, and try to understand that everybody's going – you know, in, in the same direction, there may be some differences of opinion on how you get there. I think if you can communicate on the front end what you're trying to do, especially as a pitching pitching coach, or what your approach may be, uh, and sometimes that can lessen the stress a little bit on the head guy if he kind of understands what you're doing on the front end a little bit. But I, I think just basic communication and respect for, for each other goes a long way. Yeah, how do you navigate that as a pitching coach? You've been a really successful pitching coach. How do you navigate those conversations? Because I, I think that's, I, for me, that's the, the biggest dynamic is the head coach, pitching coach dynamic, because the pitching coach is so important, um, but also very stressful. Um, you know, the, the pitching is, I, it is the most important. I'm not a pitching guy. Um, I played one for a couple years, but I'm not really a pitching guy. But how do you navigate those conversations? Because it is an important topic. Well, one, it really helps if you can keep your poise, uh, especially in the middle of the game. Um, and I guess the best way to put it is be respectful of everybody's position, understand that everybody's trying to win. And when you throw a change, it gets – drilled into the gap or over the fence, you know, understand that that's just a, a part of it. But uh, certainly at different points in time had uh, conversations about what pitch is being thrown with Coach Cohen or Coach Casey. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but but I think if, if you can help on the help the, the issue, the conversation, the relationship on the front end, I think it helps a little bit. And then uh, if somebody gets, as a head coach, somebody wants to get really involved and have them sit right next to you and say, what do you think? And try to and try and get it done, you know, before the, before the pitch is called. This has been a hot button topic. I, I call 2021 now the year of the wristband because it's gotten 
it's gotten play and wristbands have been around forever, but how are you relaying pitches? Uh, well, fortunately for me, the last few years, I've been in the SEC in the Pac-12 and we have the walkie-talkie, so which I'm a huge fan of. Are you? Uh, I, I am. I do, not just for the pitch calling, but the, the relationship building with the catcher, the instruction from the catcher. Uh, now you've got the three visits from the position players as well as the as three from the coach. And so there's some work that you can get done in that regard. Well, and I, you know, what I've tried to interject is this came more from a, a pitch, and you started on the West Coast. So um, this came to cover up coaches being able to pick signs. Now, do we yeah. get to a point where the, the pitcher has an earpiece in to with a runner at second base so the catcher doesn't have to give signs? Yeah, my guess would be no, but I'm going to leave that up for some other people <laughs> to decide. Uh, that's not where I would go, you know. But, but you know, I guess if you would have asked if we'd have walkie-talkies 20 years ago, nobody would have thought that was possible. So I'm not sure where we're going, but uh, that wouldn't be my choice. <laughs> What do you feel like, you know, as a head coach, who were your, you know, what did your best assistants do for you as a head coach? Well, one is they have passion for what they're doing. They have uh, a willingness to grow in the position. Uh, the guys that most of the guys that worked for me uh, had a lot of experience coming in. So that was good. Not all of them, but, but a lot of them had experience coming in. So they had a, uh, they had formed their own opinions of what a good player was, what they look like. I think also it's really important that they understand what you can work with, with, with whatever area it is that you work, you know? So when they're bringing me pictures, there's a, there's a foundation that's already there that, that we can build upon and not something that we got to completely reconstruct. I think they're open to new ideas. I think they're open to growth. Uh, work ethic, obviously, at the top of the list, the ability to communicate along all uh, the entire range of the, spe the entire spectrum of personalities and families and uh, just the ability to reach people. And then going from assistant to head coach, <laughs> somebody's having to do that for the first time. Uh, what are some tips for those guys that are having to go from head assistant coach to head coach for the first time? Hire really good assistants. That would be the first place. And I've had some good ones. Uh, that would be good. Understand that your time is going to be spent. A lot more of your time is going to be spent on doing things that are not directly related to the field. That's new, obviously, as an assistant coach, you're in the cage. You're, you've got a fungo in your hand. You're throwing BP. You're standing in the bullpen. You're working with long toss deliveries, you know, what, whatever aspect of the game that you're addressing or that you work with. And, as a head coach, you're going to be working with a lot more of the administrative end of it. Man, going from head coach back to assistant, did you feel like that was an easy transition or a hard transition to do that? Oh, I, I used to joke it was like going on vacation. You know, I, I just thought, you know. I well, mean, you see how hard it is now. to be a head coach, you know, and, and I, th I think about you every once in a while because I'm like, okay, here's a high-level head coach. Now you go back to being an assistant. Maybe maybe you have a little bit better understanding of what the head guy is going through because you've had to go through it. Yeah, I, Ryan, I think you have a dr dramatically better understanding of what the head guy is going through, and, and I think it's really uh, 
a really powerful thing in, in, in your perspective and how you look at things. And it's dramatically different because you've been there, you understand the frustrations, you know that there's things going on that uh, aren't necessarily shared with everybody in the program or your assistants that there's no reason to, you know, but there's just a much, much greater understanding and a much uh, clearer perspective of what's really happening uh, beyond the baseball field. You know, you've been in some high pressure cooker situations, you know, programs. How do you handle the ups and downs? Um, you know, my situation was different than yours. I was at places that, that obviously winning is important at every place, but um, you're in some pressure cooker situations. How do you handle the ups and downs during the season? Well, I think as you get older, your, your perspective and your understanding uh, grows and cl- is a little bit clarified. Um, and the biggest thing I think is that um, whatever pressures, whatever stress, whatever anxiety you may be visiting at that point in time, you, you keep it to yourself and you don't, you, you know, you don't let it get to the players. You got to understand, you know, they're, they're doing the best job that they can. They've got things going on. They've got a personal life. They've got academic things that they're battling. Uh, they've got time issues that they've got to uh, balance in, in all areas of their life. And so you want to make sure that they're as stress-free as, as they possibly can be. So they, they don't need your stress. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. I think that the best ones are able to buffer whatever is going on uh, from the players so they don't see it. Um, what are your foundations for running a program? I mean, if you had to lay out your your core covenants for running a program, what are they? You're talking about as a head coach or a pitching We'll get to let's go head coach first, and then we'll we'll, well get to pitching staff next. In terms of being a head coach, I think you you've got to build it on honesty. It is it is cliche as that may sound, but it, once you lose the trust in your in your program, then you're kind of done. So you've got to be honest. You got to absolutely love what you're doing. You got to hire people that love what they're doing. Uh, you've got to bring in people that fit fit you with the skill set and the personalities, uh, bringing people that really want to get an education is a huge benefit. Uh, and bringing people that really want to excel in baseball. Um, yeah, I think you can talk forever on the foundation, but work ethic, honesty, integrity, all the buzzwords that are so important for, for lasting success. Are the kids different now than they were 30 years ago? In certain aspects, they're different. In certain aspects, they're I think almost exactly the same. Um, they come at you with much more knowledge than they used to. I think in certain instances, they understand the game much less. They're, uh, they have access to all the technology that, that is out there. Uh, you better be able to speak to it. You better be able to understand it, teach from that perspective. Um, do you think the time constraints have a lot to do with that now that they don't have as much of an understanding of the game because they're not on the field as much? Brian, I have a lot of opinions on that. I don't know that I'm necessarily a hundred percent accurate, but, but I, but I, and all you can do is go from your own personal experience, but I played for a guy who played 77 Legion baseball games and winning a Legion baseball game was really important, like really important. I, my Little League you know, coach, it was important that we won a Little League game. It was. Yeah, and and there are times now where, where not all kids by any stretch, but there will be kids that come to you 
that, that have no clue what their summer league team was and they played on multiple teams. It's just a different dynamic. And it's, that piece has absolutely changed over the years. How, how do you bring, um, you know, knowing that, I mean, this is what it is. It is what it is now. Yeah. Knowing that, how do you bring and instill that team aspect and, and winning baseball to someone that hasn't experienced that yet? Well, I think it's got to be part of the conversation early on. And I thought, I think also the one of the things that, that, that can really help you in that regard is teaching. And, and I think if you can break the game down in at whatever position or whatever aspect of the game, you know, offense, defense, team defense, individual defense, base running, pitching, uh, team building, all that. If you can illustrate to them that there's a certain way to go about it and there's a reason that you're doing that leads to success, then I think you have a chance to, to, to get them to see things, you know, the way that you want them to approach the game. Now, what about foundations for pitching staff? Throw strikes. I, I just think you're so much better off, even if the stuff isn't quite as good, but. Now, does that go know, to recruiting? It, it, do you take care of it? Cause now it, this has been a conversation for a while, and I know it's getting play, but people are talking about you can develop velocity, but I always felt like a guy had command early was probably going to always be able to command the baseball, and if he didn't command the ball well in high school, probably going to have a hard time. You might be able to get them to throw it over the plate, but still probably not going to have great command in college if they didn't have it in high school. Yeah, Ryan, I agree. I think you can go from erratic to control. I'm not sure you can ever get to command. You know, and, and so and we deal in a partial scholarship world, you know, and so you're, you're going to be willing to take challenges on certain skills or lack of skills or strengths or weaknesses, you know, whatever it is. Uh, you can take some gambles, you know, a walk on is uh, is doable if there's a lot of strength and he doesn't know where it's going. But it, it's hard to pay a kid or give a kid a scholarship. That that uh, that that can't that doesn't have control. He may be big and strong, and there's some arm strength there, and you can see things. And you know, there's enough of those guys that turn the corner and become something to keep us going back. We all know that. But if you really want to win and perform at a high level, especially late in the season, you, you've got to have command on the mound. Now, wipeout secondary stuff is is valuable too. We know that, but uh, you got to be able to get to strike two before you can punch him out. When you walk into a ballpark to watch a kid now recruit, how how much time do you need? You've been doing this 30-plus years. How much time do you need? Well, that's a really good question. You know, Dennis Rogers told me, I, you know, when I got started working for Dennis um, in 1990, uh, there were no rules about recruiting in, in Southern California, and I was really, really fortunate, super fortunate. There was a ball game every night of the week except Monday and Friday night. You know, they had scout league all over the place. So there was, you know, four or five times a week. Every week I was out for a couple, well, about three years. And I covered hundreds and hundreds of games. And I used to, uh, as they as they said, box out the entire card on everybody on the field. And Dennis used to tell me, uh, you know, there's going to be a day when you don't need to do that. You know, you're going to go there and you're going to know what you're looking for and you're going to be able to, eliminate guys immediately and, and know exactly where to spend your time and your, and your concentration. And he was right. Um, but more specifically to your question, um, I mean, sometimes you, you walk in and it's, 
a matter of seconds. I walked into the state playoffs in Ohio and saw Evan White playing first base. And I thought that that might be the, the best defensive first baseman I've ever seen at any level of baseball. You know, that, that was just a, a matter of seconds, just three, four ground balls. And that was an absolute no brainer. Sometimes you got to go back and back, especially if the, if the skills are there um, and, and maybe it's uh, an undersized athlete, maybe the strength hasn't come yet and, and you're just not sure, you know, how far they've got to go to get that done. Sometimes you got to come back one one. Sometimes it's a no brainer. Sometimes you walk in and go, okay, that guy's going to go in the third round. You know, you see the stuff immediately. I liked getting there early and watching guys play catch. And that was pitcher's position. And I was a defense first recruiter. I, I had a hard time recruiting a, a player if, he, if I didn't feel like he was going to be able to play defense for us. Some of that was the ballparks that we played in that were bigger ballparks that you knew you were going to have to defend and, and hopefully run a little bit. But even on the mound, spending time on the side. And, you know, how much are you using comps still? I, I think towards the end for me, if I couldn't comp – who I was looking at to somebody maybe that I had seen before, I had a hard time recruiting them. Well, I think that's important. That's also important in the relationship between the recruiter and the head coach. If you can have that ability and not always to comp a, a big league player, but maybe somebody that's been college in your player. Program. It was, it was comping yeah. college guys for me. I was trying to comp, yeah. you know, a big leaguer, but, but for me at the schools I was at, if I was comping a big leaguer to this guy, he's not coming to okay. Iowa or right. Western Illinois or James Madison or Evansville. He's not going to those places. I had to comp guys that were college guys that turned into pro guys. I couldn't comp a big leaguer. I went to perfect game national in those, those national events. If I'm comping that guy to a big leaguer, I don't probably need to call him. It's going to be a token call to throw my hat in the ring. Yeah but I don't need to waste my time on that guy because he's not coming to the schools that I'm at. Yeah. That's the voice of experience right there is what you're describing, you know, and, and try to get that done on the front end because your time is valuable and you really want to spend it in an area where you got a shot to get, get somebody that is impactful, somebody that helps. What dictates high school or junior college for you? Whether you're going to re recruit a kid out of high school or junior college? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, I guess the short answer is the success of the high school kids that you've brought into the program previously. Um, you know, but sometimes in, injuries enter into a situation, not very often anymore, but sometimes academic things can play into it a little bit. That, that is less and less as time goes on. Um, just because there's so much help in, in school that if a young man's willing to get out of bed and go to class, there's enough help there to get him, uh, in a position to be successful academically. I try to tell um, people that all the time. They're like, hey, he's a marginal student. I'm like, hey, we have a lot of help here for kids at this level. Yeah. Like if he's going to at least show up um, and work at it, there's more than enough help here that they're going to graduate if they will just show up. If, if they're lazy and they're not going to go to class, then they're going to they're gonna have some hurdles to jump over. But if they're at least going to show up, there's so much uh, resources at your guys' level to help them get through school with tutoring and, and the, the learning centers and everything that you have. Yeah, I agree with that completely. You know, your staff at Mississippi State in 17, we played you guys. You had a ton of different looks. How much is that on the pitching staff and recruiting as you're trying to recruit some different looks? Well, to me, that's really important. And I, and I understand that not everybody believes in that approach. And, I'm a big believer in it. I'm a huge yeah, believer I am. in different looks. Yeah. 
uh, I am. And, you know, in order to get that done, you got to be somewhere for a while and you got to have a really good plan. You got to know what you're doing. Uh, and the understanding is that you're not going to be 100% correct, you know, or, or accurate in your assessment. So it takes a while to build that. But I, if you've got a couple of different looks left-handed, a couple of different looks right-handed out of the bullpen, I think it puts you in a position to really be successful and cover up another guy's weaknesses. That's where we'd fill out those last those last walk-on spots. If there was a kid laying out there that was getting overlooked, that had a different look, that was a sidewinder, that was a low three-quarter guy yeah. that had some funk to it. We would take those guys all the time because it just even if it's going to get you three batters and three outs in a game, those guys have so much value. Again, completely agree. What three outs, right? <laughs> and, well, they're all important. There's 27 no outs question. in a game, all 27. And, and now with the yeah. 21 outs, they're all important. It doesn't matter how you get them or what it looks like yeah. to get those outs. You, you just got to find a way to try to get those outs. And that might be, you know, in a midweek game where you're throwing nine pitchers out there to, to get those outs, but it doesn't matter what they look like. Yeah. And sometimes you win the game in the fifth inning. For sure. And, you know, are you seem like that came into play um, in the big leagues about maybe six, seven years ago where the closer started to come in and higher leverage situations early. Are you doing that? Well, you'd like to be able to do that. That depends upon the depth of your staff and and obviously the skill. Uh, but I've, I've, I have absolutely been in situations where we, we can do that and I've been in situations where you can't do it. Yeah, because if you, if you burn that guy and you don't have anybody behind them, you might be up six to three at that point, but you're going to probably be down 12 to, to seven at some point. Yeah, Ryan, just my own personal belief and philosophy is that depending upon what type of season you're having and what, what kind of arms you've got down there in the bullpen, your club really needs to believe that you can protect the lead in the seventh and eighth and ninth inning. And, and once, if they have that belief, regardless of how your season is going, it's dramatically easier to keep them on the edge and keep them focused. If once your club loses that belief, it, it, that's just a really uh, tough situation to be in. Yeah. How do you get that back though? I mean, you've been through a lot of seasons where, where teams have lost, probably lost belief a little bit. How do you get that back? Recruiting. <laughs> it, it, once you lose that in the middle of, in a season, that, that's a tough, tough thing to, to fix. Uh, can you do it? Sure. You can do it. How are you going to do it? Well, you got the same kids down there. There's no triple A, you know, so you, you got to get them convinced that uh, their stuff plays, that they can get guys out with guys on base late in the game when the, when the, you know, the game is still in the balance. I mean, in 30 plus years, how long did it take you to figure that out that, okay, it really does boil down to what our roster looks like. If you have, especially at the division one level, if you have, really good players, really good pitchers, you're going to win more games. The first time that I was ever in a situation where you could build your staff from the back uh, was at the University of Florida. You know, and so I, we had three big leaguers in the bullpen, and all of a sudden you figured out that, that uh, you're a dramatically better pitching coach when you're going to go get guys, you know, in the sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth with Bog and Wilkerson and, and Rigdon back there. Um you know, you, you just you, you can turn it into a shorter game and you're a lot smarter coach when you're bringing in that type of secondary stuff. 
Yeah, we got spoiled my third year at JMU. We had Dan Meyer, who was a first-rounder. Kurt Eisenberg uh, was a sophomore, but ended up being a third-rounder. And then Jared Doyle was a third-rounder. And we had a righty. Those were three lefties. We had a righty, Chris Cochran, who was not a draft, but won 36 games in four years in college. So you felt pretty good about rolling it out there. But I was young at the time, and uh, it just was – you got spoiled by those guys because they legitimately gave you a chance every time out. And we had some some funky back-end guys that could shut things down with some different looks. Yeah, we joked you had a really good pitching coach that year, whoever he was. <laughs> Spanky. Spank, and yeah. now Spanky McFarlane yeah. was one of the best pitching guys I had ever yeah. been around. I owe a lot to him. One, he gave me an opportunity to – to stay in the game by offering me a $9,000 position. So it allowed me to stay in, but you talked about different personalities. His personality was so different than my dad's. My dad was a fiery, you know, military Marine and Spanky was very laid back. So that was a great thing for me seeing different personalities and you could win doing it a variety of ways. But again, being yourself, you know, that was the biggest thing I learned from Spank was like, be yourself. Absolutely. When you hear West Coast baseball, you've been all over the country. You've been East Coast, Midwest. You know, is West Coast baseball is that an actual thing for people that that hear that um, but don't know? Um, this time back, you know, um, you know, I started on the West Coast, obviously, and got indoctrinated into West Coast baseball at pretty high level when I was at Chapman because we played everybody, you know, in the Southland, everybody, you know, or for that matter, everybody in California, it seemed like. And so at that point in time, I would have told you there absolutely was uh, a West Coast aspect that was more smaller, you know, small ball, hit and run, steel, steel signs, all that. Uh, I have not experienced that to near the same level uh, this time back at at Utah as we're going through the Pac-12. Um, there's, there's good baseball teams everywhere and in every league. Um, but, but I haven't noticed, uh, a lot more of the bunting or that type of a pressure game at, at all here, much more, uh, standard offense. Some of the, you know, not, not everybody has the same approach, obviously offensively, but, uh, I have not seen that this time. And I understand what it is pretty clearly. Well, yeah, because you grew up around it, um, yeah. and and that was in my sweet spot in college. And I'm glad I played in the era that that I played in because my skill set was more towards action, bunting, pushing, stealing. Um, you just don't see it as much, and and maybe that's a little bit of the limit. Those are skills, especially if the guys don't have it when they get to college. You can spend time on it, but it's hard to teach those guys those skills, and they're not comfortable at doing it. Um, I talk to youth coaches all the time. I'm like, if you want to help a kid out, teach them how to bunt a little bit. You don't have to do it in games, but at least teach them so they're comfortable with it because if they don't spend time on those skills, when you get to college, if you've never done that – and it takes a little bit of ego, you know, if you try to lay a drag bunt down and you're not good at it, and now you're 0-1 or 1-2, it's hard for kids to buy into doing that. It is. And there's another aspect as well. You know, for instance, Mark Ellis played a post-22 in Rapid City, South Dakota, and they, they won the national championship when he was a sophomore in high school. And um, if you're playing for Dave Plouffe in that era, you, you were going to understand the bunning game. You are going to understand hit and run. And that, that, that is just an aspect that has changed over the years. Um, 
And I'm not saying that there's no bunting or hit and running and travel baseball, but, but there's certainly less than there was for, for the guy I played Legion baseball for or Mark played or what was going on in Yakima or Lewiston or Billings. You know, the, the, the offense was designed, designed to win, not necessarily to uh, build stats. My junior Legion coach, Jeff Bryvogel, was a cop in town but played at Evansville, and he forced me to push bunt my sophomore summer because he was like, hey, if you want to play in college, you're going to need to do this, and it's going to help you be a better offensive player because, like, you're a little guy, and so this is what you're going to need to do. So he forced me. I had to do it once a game, and it did help us win, but obviously looking back now is the best thing for me because in college it was something that I could do. But if he didn't force me to do that at, at that age – probably wouldn't have been as comfortable off good stuff. I mean, in the Missouri Valley, you're facing guys like Nate Robertson yeah. and good stuff left-handers. So I was skilled at off high-level stuff, dragging and push-bunting because I had done it for a long time. And Again, everybody's different, but again, I'm happy that I played in the era that I did because my skill set was, was good. You know, you talked about yeah. – go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and I was really fortunate. Obviously, I, I was on the pitching end of it, but I got to sit – at San Diego State for five years and watched Coach Deach teach that to our guys. And we certainly had guys that could swing the bat. There's no doubt about that. But there was also an aspect of your club where you create pressure with push and drag and, and all those different types of things that create pressure uh, for a defense. And, and we were skilled at it. And I was very fortunate to get to watch that. You talked about some differences, but what are the similarities with players now? I mean, what, what are the same things that you're seeing now that you saw 30 plus years ago? that if you can help a kid get better and work towards his goal of playing professional baseball or playing in the big leagues, that he'll do just about anything that you ask him to do ethically. You know, as long as you're not out there on the edge somewhere, they'll do almost anything if they feel like that you have their best interest at heart, you communicate directly with them, and you help them improve their skills they're in. What tech are you using? Are you using any tech with guys? The only thing that we have access to, but we got the slow motion camera and, and we got the rap soda. That's the only thing that we have access to. And I, we used them all fall. I, I think it's like a lot of things. If you, if you know what you're doing and you, and you use it uh, judiciously and it's not every single day and it's not the focus of what you're doing. So you lose some of the other important aspects. Uh, I think there's some value there. When you want a pitcher to make an adjustment, how are you approaching them with that? Well, hopefully with some skill, uh, dependent upon what what it is that you're, you know, what type of an adjustment, you know, are you looking for and what battle are you willing to wage? What are you willing to, what are you willing to lose at? You know, I mean, how, how important is it that he changes his grip? I mean, because it might be really important. It might be, you know, his career at stake. And so if you, if you meet resistance at that point, then you've got to have a, an ability to communicate you know, so you don't create a contentious relationship or destroy the relationship uh, because he doesn't have the same experience and or you know the same perspective that you have. But in terms of approach, uh, you know, there's an approach to taking care of your body off the field. There's an approach to competition. There's a, uh, an approach to controlling that inner dialogue of, of how you go about you know your self-talk. Uh, are you listening to yourself or are you just talking to yourself, you know, and trying to get him to make uh, changes in those areas, um, you know, it can take some time. You, you got to have some skill to get kids to change certain aspects. 
How are you teaching competition and, and competitiveness? Well, sometimes you think you're doing a really good job because guys are getting better at it. And other times you don't think you're doing a very good job at all because kids aren't getting better at it. You know, so sometimes you wonder how impactful are you? Know, are you? Uh, competition within the program really helps in that area. You know, if playing time is, is a powerful thing. Power of the pen is is uh, is as important today maybe as it's always been. If you have if you have guys that like to play and have future goals in mind, um, and then you know you just have to work from your own skill set of how you're going to impact change. When you're looking at your 12 month calendar for your pitchers, where do you start? Where in the year do you start your 12 month calendar with them? Ryan, I don't think it's the same for every kid. And the reason I don't is because I don't think that they're all doing the same thing at the well. I mean, that's obvious. They're not all doing the same thing at the same time. But I, I think you'd like to start in January, you know, just because that's kind of a common starting spot. But, you know, you can't have that. They're just not all on the same schedule. You know, some kids are going to play in the summer and get 30, 40 innings in. Hopefully they're not coming back after 50 or 60. Um, but there's going to be guys that, that play in the summer. There's going to be guys that sit sit in the weight room in the classroom uh, in the summer. And so I think you got to build it in, from an individual standpoint, but it'd be good for the most part to take a look at what you're doing. Um, Where's your cutoff for them in the spring for innings that they don't need to go out in the summer? It's very much individual. You know, I used to say 80, you know, and now I would drop that a little bit. Um, I don't have a hard and fast rule, but but I think if a kid pitches every weekend, especially in a, in a starter's role, I, I don't think he needs another seven starts in the summer. That's just my my personal belief. Uh, and if a guy is pitching two innings every weekend, and at the end of the year he's got 30 innings for you, I think he can go out and get another 25 or 30. So then for the fall, say a kid doesn't pitch in the summer, what are you doing with them in the fall? Say a kid does pitch in the summer, what are you doing with them in the fall? Well, some guys are going to start long toss, hopefully day one or day two of school and try to do that um, and get a foundation, get a base built. You know, I would really like to be able to do that uh, for four to six weeks. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Depending upon where you are and what your weather looks like, when are you going inside? Uh, you know, when are you going to be forced to go inside is a better way to look at it. Um, With your guys' weather, when are you limited a little bit weather-wise in the fall? As far as when no. you need to be finished? No, not really. Uh, so when you guys start, full team stuff for you guys in the fall, you know, with COVID and all that not being around, but when do you guys start? Well, the individual stuff, that individual piece starts the first week of school, yeah. which is late August. And then uh, then you, you start your 45-day window late September, get you, get you to – Halloween, early November, whatever it is. But we're high desert here, so the fall is fantastic. And then after the fall, what type of shutdown are you having? Again, is that individual? Um, you know, who shuts down, who doesn't, who keeps going? How are you gauging that? It's changed over the years. I think it's a really good question. I think it's a really interesting question. Uh, they, it used to be we just – you know, shut them down for three weeks and then start them back up a little bit. I think you're better off if you can play easy, moderate, 60 to 90 foot catch. I agree. Just keep, keep the keep the joint moving, keep your arm moving a little bit. I think you're better off in that regard. That's kind of been my a change in my perspective over the years. Um, so w once again, you know, 
you, you still have to take it individually. If you have somebody that missed some time in the, uh, in the fall because of whatever reason, then, then I think you need to look at them a little bit differently than the guy that's been going all summer and all fall. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that changed. I think changed for a good that guys kept moving a little bit and, and they liked it. I think guys realized that when they shut down for that long and tried to get back up, it was hard, much harder to get their arm back up. And it felt like they were able to get into bullpens a little bit quicker to get ready for the season also. Yeah, I agree with all that. There's also just a lot more access to indoor facilities than there was 20 or 30 years ago. And almost almost all of our guys have got access when, when they go home. So that that, that makes it a benefit. You almost worry that they don't do too much over the break. Yeah. How are those conversations? Do you have to do you have to peel some guys back a little bit? Like, hey, you're you're going too much right now. Yeah, certain personalities you do, absolutely. And you do it directly and you do it in a kind manner. You know, you're not looking to destroy relationships or embarrass a kid. You just got to try and get him to see the big picture. When do you really need to be good? You know, when, when do you really need to be at your best? And it, and it may not be December 3rd, you know, and get him to understand that. What recommendations do you have for the youth parents and, and players out there right now? Well, uh, that's a topic that I certainly have an opinion on my, and it may not be you know, the popular one or the, or the, the most prevalent one, but my recommendation would be play as many sports as you can, as long as you can, and really try to focus on enjoying what you're doing for as long as you can, as opposed to trying to earn a scholarship or, or whatever it is when you're 9, 10, 12, 13, 14 years old. And I know we're, you know, we've got programs that have got commitments out of the 25s. You know, I get that aspect of it. But early on, if, if you can play more than one sport and if you can really focus on enjoying it, uh, I just think that's a real benefit, long-term benefit. I said this the other day. I think the difference now is every kid thinks they're going to be a draft, and so you have some interesting conversations at times with kids where in the past nobody thought they were going to be a draft, and it was just about winning. Well, yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, yeah, I, I think also, Ryan, Ryan, the only thing that I would add to that along with it is I think the parents think they're going to be a draft more often than is realistic. And I, and I don't think that's a positive uh, dynamic. Well, yeah, because there's some expectations with that. And then every pitch is life or death. Every at bat is life or death. And it's, it's hard to, to perform and go out there and perform with that type of external pressure rather than just focusing on pitch to pitch and playing the game and, and being in the present moment. Yeah. I, I don't have much to add to that. I agree with it. Hey, if you could go back and tell your 25 year old self something, what would it be? I'd like to go back and tell my 18 year old self something. Yeah. We can that, back that, it up. Yeah. I, I'd like to have him understand that an 88 mile an hour fastball is not going to be enough. <laughs> You know, and that, and that you're going to be a little short in that area. And what you really need is to dominate a changeup. That took me four years of college to, to figure that piece out. Uh, that I'd like to do that. Uh, what changeup? What, what, what changeup were you throwing? What what changeup were you throwing? I didn't really have a, a good changeup to my last year in college, and it was a split. 
So obviously I had some skill skill issues there that that uh, I couldn't overcome, but I, I never had a good circle. In fact, I, I don't even know that I understood how to throw a circle, uh, but I would go back and I would absolutely try and figure out a circle change uh, as opposed to waiting until I was 22 years old to throw a split. You talked about grips. I mean, how are you? How are you doing? It's called pitch design now, but how are you yeah. basing who throws what, and and how are those conversations as far as grips? You you base it based upon what you're trying to get done. You base it upon what you've seen for thirty years. You you base it upon uh, the comfort level of the of the athlete that you're working with. You show him the technology. You show him the, the results of what it is. Uh, we're fortunate that we have access to guys that are doing it a certain way at a really at a really high level that you can show him the slow-mo video of this is how it's done. This is what you need to do. This is how you know we, we best get there. Um, I, I happen to be a believer in the fact that you can hold the baseball more than just the conventional way and get it to do something. Not everybody's the same. And that is something that you learn over time. Not everybody has to grip a two or a four or a cutter or a slider or a curveball the same way to get them to do what they're supposed to do uh, or what you want them to do. It's very much an individual uh, uh, endeavor. And I think the older that you get, let me rephrase that. I have gotten a lot better with the understanding that there's more than one way to throw a curveball, for instance. So those unconventional grips, I mean, what, what are some of the differences? Because obviously you're working off the, the fastball there, with, especially with the curveball, you're working off the four-seam fastball grip. But what are some of the maybe non-conventional grips that you're using for curveballs? I just think when, when you see a certain action out of a wrist or a hand placement, you know, sometimes it just absolutely jumps out to you that this guy needs to spike it. This is, you know, or the knuckle curve or spike the ball or whatever it is. And... Um, I think it's something if you're if you're if you're standing back there with four or five guys that have been doing it for 25 or 30 years, I don't think that you're going to be the only one that sees that. I think that's going to be a relatively apparent uh, adjustment that, that is potentially made. Now, I'm not I'm not sure that we see things and, you know, you automatically know that it's going to be successful, but you see things in a certain vein that, that tell you that hey, this is who's got a chance to be successful you know a certain guy there's no way that he's gonna he just can't get to the top of the baseball a spike is probably not for him or 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 vice versa and, and the same thing with the circle i think there's just certain skills that you see uh, a freedom of release the ability to get on top and inside you know that, that leads you to believe that hey this might work and then you, you travel that path for a while and hopefully um which is the case not all the time but frequently that, you know, within the first few minutes or the first few few days, it's like, okay, there's something here that we can build upon. And then you travel that path. Do you have a fail forward yeah. moment? Do you have something along the way that you thought was going to sidetrack you, but looking back now was one of the best things that ever happened to you? Wow. Good question. Then, uh, in 1988, I was the JV baseball coach for, for coach Dietz. And that is an absolute, classroom experience unbelievable experience one year of you and 20 players and you're doing it all from the field to the laundry to the travel to the you know it's just you and 20 players it was a wonderful experience that i needed for one year i didn't need that to be a two-year experience i learned everything you needed to know in, in nine months but um 
I got done with that and I had I'd already, you know, I'd done the high school baseball thing for, for two years. I didn't want to go back and do that. And the only option I had was going to Fullerton Junior College to be the pitching coach, which was fine. I was 100% good with it at the time and packed up my, uh, my car. And uh, I mean, you know, typical college, post-college deal. I didn't have much, but I put everything I had in the car and I drove up to to, to Fullerton and uh, I was the pitching coach there for about two or three days. And the head coach called me in and said, Hey, I, I got a chance to get this uh, major league pitcher uh, to be my pitching coach. Would you mind being the outfield coach? You can imagine a uh, pretty humbling moment for me, you know, a, a very humbling moment because uh, now I'm the outfield coach at the junior college wondering where my career path is headed. And what that did is that opened up, uh, you know, my eyes just a little bit, you know, for a 48 hour span of going, what in the world is going on? But fortunately I had worked at Cal State Fullerton uh, baseball camp for a couple of weeks in the summer and had gotten to meet uh, Larry Cochelle. And at that point, more importantly, Dennis Rogers, because Dennis was in the, uh, in the seat to hire the next uh, volunteer coach. And, and uh, luckily for me, uh, Bill Kernan hired Rick Vanderhoek to come over and work with him at Northridge. And Gordon Blakely left, uh, I guess, Sonora or Cyprus to be the, uh, the volunteer at uh, Fullerton. Kept that job for a couple of days. Was hired, I believe, by either the Mariners or the Yankees to be the national guy. And so Gordon took off and that opened up a volunteer spot about three days later for me over at Cal State Fullerton. So I went from being the uh, outfield coach at Fullerton Junior College to being the catching coach for a guy named Brent Main, who went in the first round and played in the big leagues for 15 years. I was a really good catching coach that year, by the way. Uh, but I got to meet Dennis. And uh, that changed my career because the very next year we went over to uh, Riverside Community College and had my first job as a pitching coach. And we went from a nine-win team to the state championship in our, in our first year. And that was my first experience in turning things around uh, in a program. And uh, that changed it for me. Now, that was the, the fail forward moment, I guess you called it, where I thought that, you know, I don't, am I going to be able to do this as the outfield coach at the junior college? And next thing you know, um, I'm at Fullerton and uh, on my way. You know, we have coaches out there that are, are still doing it by themselves. What were the couple things that you focused on at San Diego State when it's just you and 20 guys? Because you can't do everything at that point. So what were some of the things that you focused on to try to get done? Well, repeat myself. That, that, that question right there, Ryan, is, is the voice of experience. Because people don't understand that until you get in and you do it. You know, you get pick and choose what's really important. And what I focused on at that point in time in my, my very early beginnings as a coach was effort level. And that, that's what I was concerned with. And I, and I was determined to make those guys play as hard as they could and as aggressive as we could. Because I figured you could cover up a lot of mistakes if, if we really liked to play and we played hard. Uh, and I was fortunate. I had a wonderful group of kids uh, not a lot of them ended up playing on the varsity at San Diego State. There were some of it um, that, that some of the guys did move forward, but most of them didn't. And that was the last experience in college for a lot of them. But I was really fortunate. A super good group of kids, 
played a lot of games and that's where my focus was. Um, I wasn't running a lot of bullpens. It was, Hey, go get your, go get your work done in the bullpen. I got to throw BP to these 12 guys. Uh, and then when you're done with that, you got to hit fungos, you know, it's just, uh, uh, it's just a, there's just a lot of work to do if, if you're doing it for one guy. The high school coach today is that's doing it by himself has got my entire complete respect because he's got umpire checks, game balls, line the field, drag the dirt, drinking fountains not working, get the snack jack open. I mean, he's doing all of it. You know, it's a, it's a tough deal if you don't have good health. How have you been able to balance family with your job? Well, if you don't have a good coach's wife and you're doing what we do for a living, then things are going to be really hard for you. Um, uh, but, but bottom line is my wife, Vicki, you know, uh, if, if that's not in place and if you don't have an understanding wife, um, you know, I mean, at different times, you know, you're talking about the time that you got to go spend away from home, the recruiting aspect of it. And then there's that other conversation of we've got to move, you know, and if you don't have somebody that, that can't handle those two things, then it's going to be a rough go for you. And I've been as fortunate as you could possibly be. Do you have any morning or evening routines that you stay to on a daily basis that help you? I like to have about a half hour to myself in the morning to read. Um, it would be more, might be more productive if I got up and did the treadmill every morning. I typically do the treadmill at, when I get home at night, but, uh, I, I really value the time I have in the morning to get up and read. And it doesn't make any difference necessarily what I'm reading. It can be a book. It can be a magazine. It can be the internet. Uh, but you kind of find a piece and, uh, plan your day kind of a little bit, you know, but, uh, that's what I like to do on the treadmill. What are you doing when you get on the treadmill? Not enough. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I try to vary it up a little bit because I find it to be a little bit boring, but, uh, you know, not, nothing, uh, to be overly proud of or to even boast of, but, uh, just try to keep, I, I had my right knee replaced a couple of years ago and, and I've found that if I keep it moving, it feels a lot better than if I'm, if I don't. So that's kind of my motivation. Do you have a favorite ABCA convention mm -hmm. story? Well, I'm just really appreciative to John Cohen of uh, of telling me that I absolutely had to do it when I when I joined with John at, at Kentucky. I started working for him. He just said you have to do it, and uh, uh, it took. I guess it was. I guess it would have been five seasons for me, but I, I spoke at Philadelphia, and it's uh, it's just a. Uh, I, I don't want to be overly dramatic about it, but you go from about as nervous as you could possibly be to as, about as relieved as you could possibly be 55 minutes later. Uh, but I was glad that, you know, hats off to John for forcing me to do it, making me do it. Uh, and I was glad I've done it. Uh, you learn a lot. You learn that you don't know very much. That's one thing you learn when you start, you know, getting up there and telling people everything you know about a certain aspect. You, you find out that there's a lot to be uh, uh, discovered. What are some things that you picked up from John with his time for you when, from being a head coach? John had a really good ability to look at all aspects of the program, much more so. I was much more field-oriented at that point in time. You know, um, 
I think that's a real strength to John. And obviously it served him well as, you know, he's moved beyond being a coach into being an athletic director. But, but I think that's, I just think that was one of John's strengths. He looked at the entire thing, the, you know, facility, travel, um, schedule, much, much more in depth than I ever had. I was, you know, I, I think we need more administrators that used to coach. I mean, I think it's, it helps. I just, somebody that's been in your shoes, um, I think it helps. It used to be, it's flip flop now. You very, very rarely see any of them. But, you know, in the old days, everybody had coached a little bit before they moved into administration. I think it makes some of those conversations a little bit easier in the office because they know what you're going through. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. What are some final thoughts? Well, I appreciate you uh, giving me an opportunity to uh, to do this with you. Um, if you do it long enough, you're going to go through a rough patch. That'd be a thought for a young coach. And uh, I, I think the other thing that I tell, I've got a lot of my ex-players that are coaching now. They're really successful. They, uh, on occasion, will call and ask your opinion on something. And uh, kind of the hot a hot topic over the last four or five years has been technology. And I, I, I think it's good. I think it's valuable. I think there's a place for it. And I also think there's a place for, for being who you are and remembering what, what got you there, what allowed you to be successful and really what your, your foundation is. And, and you got to be true to yourself and not just change because the wind's blowing or somebody's selling a new piece of uh, equipment. And I can't thank you enough. I know how busy you are right now. You just had a road trip and you jumped on here, got up in the morning to, to do this with me. So thanks. You're welcome. Anytime. In season's a busy time for coaches, and I can't thank Coach Henderson enough for fitting me into his schedule. I was able to interact with him on the recruiting trail and have always valued our conversations on baseball. I can't stress enough to anyone to reach out to people in your field that have experience and are successful. It will really help speed up your learning curve. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Halen, Matt West, and ABC Office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org. Twitter at CoachB underscore ABCA, Instagram RyanBrownlee17, or direct message me via the MyABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you.